Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my conversation with Antonio Zadra and Robert Stickgold about their book, When Brains Dream, Exploring the Science and Mystery of Sleep. wanted to remind you to check out booksonpod.com. It's where you can hear all of our previous episodes. And give us a follow on Facebook and Twitter at BooksOnPod. This is Lisa Feldman Barrett, author of Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. And you are listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Antonio Zadra is a professor at the University of Montreal and a researcher at the Center for Advanced Research in Sleep Medicine. Robert Stickgold is a professor at Harvard Medical School and director of the Center for Sleep and Cognition. Together, they've just written the excellent book, When Brains Dream, Exploring the Science and Mystery of Sleep. Gentlemen, thank you so much for the time today. And Tony, we'll start with you on this one. I really enjoyed working my way through When Brains Dream. Was this book as much fun to write as it seemed? It was probably even more fun to write than it (laughs) seems. I'll speak for myself, but I think Bob will agree that we really had a blast writing this, even though we weren't quite sure what we were getting ourselves into when we were sort of hatching this project. But yeah, it was loads of fun and uh, very stimulating. How about for you, Bob? Oh, it was a total delight. I only knew Tony very moderately when we first started on this as a colleague rather than a friend. And we have just become fast friends and discovered that we are so alike in our writing style that even we can't tell who wrote which part. (laughs) So, Bob, (laughs) we'll stick with you on this next question. Just for the sake of context for everything else we're going to cover over this hour, what is a dream? Ah, You think that's an easy question? It's not. (laughs) There are lots of people who come up with very different definitions of a dream. For me, as a scientist, a dream is any mental activity that we have while we're asleep. Some people say that a dream has to be very vivid and emotional and bizarre and complex. And I think that's just a subset of dreams. So when Tony and I use the word a dream in our book, we're just talking about any thoughts, feelings, hallucinations, stories that play in front of your mind while you're asleep. Tony, would you like to add anything to that? I would only add that, of course, you know, as Bob mentions, dream experiences lie in a continuum. But of course, the kinds of dreams that interest people the most, and also to a certain extent, I would say researchers, are those really narrative-driven, emotional, usually quite strange or unusual dreams that we experience. Those are the ones that leave us wondering, what was that all about? or compel us to share it with others who may not be that interested in hearing our dreams, but that's another story. Hmm. We'll certainly get into dream interpretation a little bit later in this chat, but first, y'all did a really good job of going back over the history of dream research. And of course, many people think of Freud as one of the, if not the originator in how neuroscientists think about dreaming, thanks to the interpretation of dreams published in 1899. But much of what he covered in this book had been researched and reported on before its publication. Bob, in Talking about this in chapter two, you guys go over five different dream explorers prior to Freud. What is one of the most notable dream discoveries before Freud in your mind? Well, I think the the work of Jean-Marie Léon Saint-Denis is probably the most fascinating. And some of the things that we learned from him is that dreams involve abstraction from a memory and they can involve the forming of images. And many of the concepts of Freud, such as displacement and condensation, were already present in his writings back in 1867, so more than 40 years before Freud. He did these wonderful experiments where he, in his travels around France, would purchase a new perfume in each city or town he visited, and spray it about him while he was in that city. And then back home, he would have his assistant, while he was sleeping, spray one of these perfumes on him. And then shortly thereafter, wake him up and get a dream report. And by doing this, Saint-Denis was able to show that 
if he was exposed to these perfumes, it would trigger the formation of a dream taking place in that same location. So he was able to show that from just a small sensory input, namely of the perfume, the brain when it's dreaming can follow that perfume through associative networks to find what the location was and then to construct a story about it. And he talked about abstraction. He talked about how you could have eaten an orange during that day, but in your dream that could become a beach ball or an orange sunset or a lemon grove. It could take any aspect of the orange and turn that into a concrete element in your dream. And of course, these are some of the biggest alleged discoveries of Freud. And what's also interesting is Freud had read Sandini's book and he knew that he had already been upstaged by him. But basically in his interpretation of dreams, Freud took all of these earlier investigators' work and took them as his own discoveries. Considering that Freud swiped a number of the ideas that were expressed in the interpretation of dreams, Tony, was there a profound contribution that he did provide that was his own idea? And is it something that has withstood the test of time? Well, his own idea really was to take some of these conceptualizations of dreams and then weave them into a much larger model of how the mind works. And so this was really his model that gave birth to the psychoanalytic movement. But really his singular original contribution, and he was quite adamant about that, is that no dream could be formed unless it was infused with the energy of a repressed wish. And so these repressed desires or wishes that try to find expression during sleep are really the sole and unique instigators of dreams. Now, has this you know, stood the test of time? Absolutely not. I don't think it stood the test of time as many people, scientists, psychiatrists, and others, uh, neurologists at the time, thought that many of these core ideas were essentially wrong or could not be adequately tested. So I don't think it really held much water at the time and certainly did not gain any more traction moving forth. But because his model of dreams was really the cornerstone of the entire psychoanalytic enterprise, it became very difficult to disentangle criticisms of his dream theory versus this much broader and in many ways more compelling story about the mind, psychopathology, and the role of the unconscious in various processes that go on during our wakefulness and during sleep. It struck me as a very similar story to Thomas Edison and the light bulb, whereas he didn't actually invent the light bulb, but all these years later, because he was such an innovator with the light bulb, people still give him credit for that. So Freud gets all of this immense credit for dreams, even though he didn't, the ideas that actually have withstood the last 120 years now certainly were not his originally because he had this understanding on fusing psychoanalysis with dreams that people will still probably continue to give him credit for another 120 years, Tony. That's absolutely right. And when we ask people who are interested in Freudian ideas or who ask us about a Freudian dream ideas, if we ask them, what is your understanding of Freud's conceptualization of dreams or what he brought to dreams? Uh, most people will say things like, well, dreams come from your unconscious. Dreams are related to repressed wishes. Dreams are about sex. And as we detail in the book, all of these ideas had been articulated by others well before Freud weaved them into his model of dreams. Now, Bob, the research on dreams really went to another level. Starting in 1953 with the discovery of REM sleep, followed by the connection made between REM sleep and dreaming in 1957. How did this discovery of REM sleep in the early 1950s change the thinking on dreams over the next now 70 years? Well, it gave dreaming a neurophysiological instantiation. We could say 
oh, or we thought we could say at the time, oh, REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, is a particular physiological stage during sleep that we can measure scientifically, and that's when dreaming occurs, or that's what they thought back in the 50s. And so all of a sudden, it became not just this ephemeral thing that happens to people in the night that there's no real, quote, scientific evidence for. Now there was something scientific in the form of of neurophysiology that could be studied in association with the dreams. It was as if the mechanism of dreaming was being revealed. Bob, other than dreaming, how does REM sleep affect the body? Oh, REM sleep has a number of roles, and probably its most salient role for our discussion, certainly, is in memory processing. It turns out that all night long, our brain is continuing to be active and continuing to work and is processing memories from the day and trying to extract from those what's important, the meaning of those experiences of those memories, And REM sleep, whereas non-REM sleep seems to be largely involved in taking recently formed memories and really nailing them down, stabilizing them, strengthening them, making them resistant to interference, REM sleep seems more to be involved with taking those new memories once they've been stabilized and looking for associations to it, deciding how to file it, deciding what other information can be extracted from that new memory. And it's important to understand that just stacking away memories in our brain is not all that useful. It's sort of like having a library with no card catalog. It's like having the internet with no search engine. Unless the brain can take time after these memories are formed to figure out where to file them and how to file them, Without that happening, those memories end up not being all that useful to us. And this is just part of the overall housekeeping process that is going on while we sleep, correct, Bob? Yeah, I think most likely the reason that sleep evolved was to give the brain a chance to disconnect from the outside world so it could do this review and evaluation of recently formed memories. You know, we're not like a VCR. We can't be watching one channel and recording another. So even when we're awake, we run into this problem. You know, we'll be having this conversation right now. And at some point, I'll stop paying attention to what Tony is saying, because I'm thinking about what you had said before. And I can't do both of those at the same time. And so at night, the brain has a privileged time to go offline, stop taking in new information and focus its mental activities entirely on processing those memories from the day. But other things happen in REM sleep too. Our breathing rate varies dramatically and our heart rate varies a lot. And people think that this is involved in testing and in maintaining the ability of those systems to function across a range of conditions. Tony, it's so interesting to read, almost amusing because it's so shocking to think about in 2021 that for a long time there was an argument to be made that there was not a critical function to sleep. But how do dolphins help us understand that there is, in fact, a critical function to sleep, whether it's humans or animals? Well, sleep in dolphins, as in whales and some migratory birds, is absolutely fascinating because if Dolphins sleep, well, then they can't swim. And if they can't swim, they can't come to the surface and breathe. And if they can't breathe, well, they will drown and die. And so the solution that evolution came up with was, for instance, in the dolphin, what is known as unihemispheric sleep. That is, only half of the brain sleeps at one time. And so this allows the dolphin to be able to continue swimming and to surface when needed to continue breathing. And some migratory birds can also engage in this kind of unihemispheric sleep while on these long flight paths. And so it seems to indicate that 
whatever sleep does is really important. And it's not just a matter of us closing our eyes and relaxing. For evolution to go to such extents to create these mechanisms to allow even partial sleep to occur in the brain indicates that it must be playing a really important role. So are these animals that experience this unihemispheric sleep, are they just on autopilot for eight hours and for half that time, the right side of the brain is sleeping and for the other four hours, the left side is sleeping? Is that how it works? Yes, the brain tends to alternate from one hemisphere to another in terms of being asleep. Uh, And the same phenomena also occurs, for instance, in certain species of ducks, like the mallard duck, whereby when a whole flock of the ducks are sleeping on a ground somewhere, the ducks on the periphery will sleep literally with one eye open and half of their brain is processing, are there any dangers on the horizon? Is there, you know, a fox or some other threat approaching? And so they are partially asleep and partially attuned to any potential dangers. Fascinatingly enough, the ducks which are in the middle of the group, so not in the periphery, on the outside periphery, they are sleeping with both hemispheres asleep at the same time. Boy, that's just wild. I guess now would be a good time to lay out the different stages of sleep and explain why we do have different stages of sleep. So, Bob, why do we have different stages of sleep and what exactly are they? Well, let me start with what they are, because we certainly knew what they were before we knew why they were. And that goes back to the 1950s and that discovery of REM sleep. So basically, in the course of a night, a human goes through about five 90-minute cycles. And in each 90-minute cycle, they go through a period that's mostly non-rapid eye movement sleep, and then At the start of the night, a brief period of rapid eye movement or REM sleep. Then they go back into non-REM and they cycle back and forth between REM and non-REM all night long with the REM periods getting longer later in the night and the non-REM periods getting shorter. And then within non-REM sleep, we as sleep scientists have defined three stages of non-REM sleep that are really just stages of increasing depth of sleep. And the deepest of those is characterized by an EEG pattern, a pattern of the brain waves that we can record of these large, slow waves that are going up and down about one to four times a second, which we call slow wave sleep. And that's the deepest part of sleep. And then there's light non-REM sleep, which is where the EEG pattern shows faster brain activity. And we cycle through these all night long with most of the slow wave sleep early in the night and most of the REM sleep late in the night. Now, as to their functions, as to the evolutionary reason that they appeared, that is still up for grabs. In fact, the case that evolutionarily REM sleep is a rather recent appearance coming only after millions and millions of years of organisms only having non-REM sleep. And again, the thoughts that have been put out about REM sleep mostly have to do with this concept of more complex memory processing. It's been suggested that during REM sleep, we discover or we use algorithms, brain algorithms that let us store memories more compactly so that they don't take up as much space in the brain. And so we can store away more memories. But we don't really have those strong of ideas. We don't have experimental evidence that we can show that a given stage evolved for a particular function. But again, it looks like the non-REM sleep serves this function of just stabilizing newly formed memories, making them resistant to interference. And REM sleep is more for sort of the what if, where should I file it? What else does it fit with? How can we extract the gist from some information? And should we just hold the gist and not worry about the details? Those sorts of decisions and those sorts of mechanisms seem to have evolved in REM sleep. So REM sleep for sort of that complex 
memory processing. Maybe we could say that non-REM sleep helps you be smart and REM sleep helps you be wise Hmm. because wisdom is about knowing the context in which information can be used and how it can be used. Tony, would you like to add anything to that? No, because I'm not going to do any better than Bob just did. (laughs) That last line about the wisdom versus smartness with regards to sleep, I I can't top that. (laughs) Yeah, that was profound. Chapter 6 is titled, Do Dogs Dream? Dogs spend more time in REM than humans, 36% to around 20 to 25%. And I'll be honest, Tony, I see my lab's legs moving at night like he's running while he's making all sorts of inspired noises. So do dogs dream? That's an excellent question. And so the real answer to that question touches on do dogs dream like we dream? I mean, the experience of dreaming that we are familiar with is the one that humans have. And so to the extent that we don't know what is it like to be a dog during wakefulness, what is the mental, their subjective state? What is their awareness of the external world? So certainly they are, but it's very different from how we experience our wakefulness. And the same probably occurs with respect to the experience of dreams. So in our dreams, human dreams, they're often metaphorical. There's often narratively driven. They're highly bizarre. So one question is, well, with dogs dreams have these same sort of qualities would they be even remembered how would a dog also distinguish memories of dreams versus memories for waking events and so i think it's absolutely it makes sense to infer from these behaviors that the dog is having some kind of experience and we can loosely call it dreaming but to equate those dreams with human dreams is probably going a bit too far, again, because we don't know what the nature of their consciousness is during wakefulness. And so it becomes even trickier to sort of posit what it might be like for dogs to be immersed in a virtual dream environment and what they might dream about. Bob, chapter seven contained a fact that blew my mind as much as just about anything that I read in this great book. And that is that the patterns of brain activity are the same when looking at or imagining an object. And these same brain patterns exist when dreaming of that same object. How do we figure the latter out? Well, first of all, I want to say I'm delighted that we blew your mind more than once in reading <laughs> our book. Um, that's that's perhaps the ultimate compliment because that's what we want people to do, to discover new ideas and start to think about themselves and the world differently. So how do we know this? Well, we know it through brain imaging technology. And in these cases, it's mostly done with functional magnetic resonance imaging or MRI. It's those brain images that you get if you have had a stroke or some head injury and they're worried about you that allows researchers or clinicians to see the structure of your brain. And then even with functional MRI, to see the activity of it. And these methods over the last two or three decades have allowed scientists to make previously unimaginable progress in understanding how the brain works because we can actually see the activity that underlies our mental activities. So if I have someone who is lying in a magnet, a magnetic resonance imaging magnet, lying in the magnet, and we ask them to uh, do a math problem, we will see some parts of their brain light up. Whereas if I ask them to remember a story I told them earlier, we'll see other regions of the brain light up. And if we imagine, ask them to remember faces, we'll see a particular region of the brain that's uniquely involved in face recognition, that area will light up. And if you do very, very careful and complex and tedious mathematical analyses, you can find 
individual regions of the brain on the size of, oh, I don't know, a 20th of an inch on a side, little cubes called voxels, like pixels are two-dimensional dots on a screen. Voxels are three-dimensional volume dots in the brain. They can find individual voxels that light up when someone looks at a door or looks at a child or looks at an adult or looks at a street scene. And these are different voxels. And then they can do this while people are actually staring at a screen where they're being shown hundreds of faces and doors and tools and street scenes and buildings and build up a, for that individual, a voxel pattern of brain activity for each of those different types of visual images. And then they, it's very simple. You say, okay, close your eyes and picture a face. Okay, now picture a building. Great. Now picture a hammer. And by recording each of these, the brain activity associated with each of these mental images, they can then look and ask, okay, what do they match compared to when they're actually looking at things? And it's a perfect lineup. The regions of the brain that light up when you look at a picture of the face are the ones that light up when you imagine a face in your mind and are the same voxels that light up just before you wake someone up, ask them what they were dreaming about. And they say, I was dreaming about this woman I know. I was seeing her sitting in a chair. And sure enough, the face voxels and the person voxels were lit up just a few seconds before that. The implications of just what reality is going forward, I think, cannot be stated enough with this concept. And we may probe into that a little bit later on. But I uh, needed to get both of your thoughts on something that is near and dear to both of you. It is a way of looking at, understanding, processing dreams, thinking about dreams that is an acronym. The acronym is N-E-X-T-U-P, or NEXT UP. Bob, you actually came up with NEXT UP. How so, and what exactly is it? Well, how so is a delight in my life. Every year in the summer, my wife teaches a course on psychotherapy down on Cape Cod, near where we live in Boston. And I get to go along and hang out on the beach while she's teaching this course. And a couple of years ago, instead of hanging out on the beach, I was working on this book. And I was dreaming about it. And I was writing. And it became clear to me halfway through the week that I was coming up with a new model of dreaming and I didn't know what it was. And I literally slept on it. And day by day, this model appeared in my mind, evolved in my thoughts. It, it was one of the most exciting and delightful moments in my life, a week-long moment. And a little bit terrifying because I had to send it off to Tony afterwards to say, Tony, does this make any sense at all? <laughs> Because it was one of those creative moments where you're not sure you haven't completely lost touch with reality. But we then spent the next year together fleshing out this model and coming to understand its implications. So next up stands for network exploration to understand possibilities. And the simple description of it is to say that when we dream what our brain is doing. And the function of that dream is to take recently identified memories, recent memories that have been identified as, how can I say it, still needing more work, things we have learned but don't fully understand. It's when you're leaving work and your boss says, well, I hope to see you tomorrow. And you walk away and you say, he was just being nice, right? What does he mean? He hopes, does he think maybe I won't be here? What did he mean exactly? <laughs> or you work on some problem and you get halfway to the solution and you're not there yet. Or you're trying to make some life decision like 
about possibly moving to a new location and a possibility comes up and you're thinking about it. And then you go to sleep. And these memories have been tagged some way. There's been some sort of physiological marker, a yellow sticky by metaphor, attached to those memories saying, we need to work on this. We need to figure this out. And then when we dream, our brain goes out into its multi-trillion cell network of brain cells that contain all of our memories and all of our associations and all of the concepts that we have formed. And it looks for anything that's related to the memory from the day. And in particular, it looks for those older memories that are only weakly and tenuously connected to the event of the day. It's looking for new and creative ways of thinking about what happened during the day. And when it finds one, that's good. That's like when I came up with the model itself. I said, okay, here's a new creative way to think about it. But then you have to sort of decide, okay, does it actually work? Is it actually useful? And so after these associations are discovered, the brain has to try to see if they make any sense. And it turns out that it does that by dreaming about it. Dreaming is the only way, or rather consciously creating imagined scenarios, is the only way we can do what-if experiments. It's the only way we can do planning. It's the only way we can come up with new strategies for solving problems. It's probably one of the greatest powers the human brain has. They can plan ahead. And when we plan ahead, we literally, in our minds, act out those plans. We say, okay, if I were to take that job, it would mean that I'd have to find a new house. Okay, I would have to go house hunting and we'd have to find a school for the kids. And I imagine, I imagine going and doing those things. And then what happens is without even attempting or planning to, I react to those thoughts. I say, oh God, we could get a bigger house. Oh, we really need a bigger house. Oh, but the kids love the school they're in. They'd be so unhappy. It would be such a bummer to have to pull them out of the school. And then what we do, and I don't think we even know we're doing it when we make decisions, is we look at what our emotional responses are. We don't make big decisions rationally. We make them emotionally. We rationally present the argument to the jury and then we emotionally judge that rational argument. And that's how we make decisions when we're awake. And that's what we do when we're asleep. If we want to take these newly discovered associations and say, are they useful? How can I use them? Well, we have to build them into consciously experienced narratives and then watch our emotional reactions to them. So that's why we dream. That's why we have to dream. The brain can't do that just in the background, like it does a lot of other memory processing. Consciousness might, in fact, just be a gimmick that evolution came up with that allows us to do this sort of forward planning. And we do it when we're awake, and we do it while we're asleep. And when we're asleep, we call it dreaming. Bob, I'm starting to feel like I'm in the matrix here. Tony, uh, as uh, Bob just said, you uh, helped to vastly improve Next Up. He stated that pretty firmly at the start of Chapter 8 as well. How did you do so? Well, A, uh, when Bob sent me an email explaining his ideas, I told him that he wasn't crazy um, (laughs) and that he hadn't lost touch with reality. So that was a step, I think, in the right direction. And Um, I thank you for that. Otherwise, much like many other chapters of the book, there was a lot of back and forth. So to expand the idea, to try to think of it in terms of different sleep stages, then to explore how can it account for certain kinds of dreams, be it nightmares or trauma-related nightmares. And so can we extend this model to particular kinds of dreams? But Bob was also mentioning the importance of our emotions in the dreams, that the brain is also tracking 
how we react to these narrative possibilities. And that is one thing that I try to bring forth within Next Up or to give more room to was the experiential elements of dreams. And that the dreaming brain does not just create or instantiate the neural networks that underlie our sense of self. We are in the dream from a first person perspective, but the dreaming brain also creates the world in which it puts us in. So it's really our conception of the world. And in the model of next up, the brain doesn't just look at how we react to the unfolding dream, but also how elements in the dream, the environment, other dream characters react to what we say, do, and think in our dreams. And so this really ever-evolving dynamic between the dreamer and the self-generated dream world is also an important part of Next Up and how we believe it functions. Bob, would you like to add something there? Yeah, just that I think one of the things that Tony really added and really taught me about is when we think about our dreams, we see ourselves in our dream and we sort of take ownership of ourselves in the dream. So we say, oh, I was in the dream and I did this and I saw that and then I did this. And the other characters in the dream, even after we wake up and think about it, the other characters seem to be their own persons, whereas in fact, we created those people too. Our minds created, our brains created those people. And they are as much us in some ways as the character in the dream who is actually us. And realizing the bizarreness of thinking about that. Well, I said this to this guy and then he got all upset. But that's all me doing that. And even now, I struggle with keeping that clear in my mind that those other people in the dream are actually just me making those people up and deciding what they're going to say and do. Bob, considering the randomness and bizarreness of dreams, it was also interesting to learn that chemically speaking, REM sleep is similar to taking LSD. How so and what does this mean in the grand scheme of things? Well, one of the curious characteristics of REM sleep is that two of the major neuromodulatory systems in the brain are completely shut down. And those are the serotonin system and the noradrenaline system. These are chemicals released broadly through the brain during waking and sleeping that sort of define what program is going to run in the brain. You know, the brain is a piece of hardware, if you will, like a computer. But these neuromodulators sort of decide what program you're going to run in that computer. And so noradrenaline is used by the brain to focus attention, to increase the intensity, the arousal of the brain so that we're more focused and more intent on one particular thing. Serotonin is probably best known because of its relationship to depression and the use of these SSRIs like Prozac. And SSRI is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which functionally increases the activity of serotonin in our brain. And that helps pull people out of a depressed state. But one of the things about REM sleep dreaming, and again, we dream in non-REM sleep as well. And Tony alluded to that earlier, but in REM sleep, We're dreaming in this complete absence of noradrenaline and serotonin. And one of the things I've been fascinated by is this sense of importance of our dreams. I love it in part because it will drive the sales of our book, (laughs) but I love it also because it's so strange. I mean, I have to tell you as a dream researcher that I've learned when I go to a party, never to tell people that I study dreams. Because (laughs) if I do, the next eight words out of their mouth, without exception, are, oh, I had the most amazing dream. And they then proceed to tell me this unbelievably boring dream that they have. 
And I can't understand why they think it's important. And they always then ask me, what do you think it means? And of course, being who I am, I always have the same answer. I always say, you are one sick cookie. <laughs> and, and then when they start to look upset, I laugh and I say, I have no idea what it means. I'm not even sure it has a meaning. But when we wake up from mostly REM dreams, these intense, emotional, bizarre narratives, there is this overwhelming sense of importance that it means something. And I was thinking, I was thinking, when else does that ever happen? And I remembered back to my days in the 60s yeah. when people were taking LSD and the same thing would happen. A friend would say, oh, I had this most amazing realization. I took acid yesterday and, and I realized that when you flush the toilet, everything goes down. <laughs> and then there's a pause and they say, no, there was more than that. No, that really explained everything. I'm forgetting something. But they're not forgetting something. There's something about this state of being on this drug, LSD, which mimics some of the action of serotonin, including blocking the release of serotonin in some regions of the brain, that produces this sense of meaning, of importance, of significance. Back in the 60s, before it was illegal, students in divinity school would take LSD and they would have these immensely intense religious experiences. They would see God. They would talk to God. God would explain their role in life. They'd have all these breakthroughs of intense meaning. And so there's something about turning off or turning up, we weren't sure which, the serotonin system, that produces that sense of meaning. And I think that it's the shutting off of serotonin in REM sleep that produces that sensation when we wake up and remember the dream of it being immensely important. I don't think that's why it evolved for when we wake up. I think the purpose of it is so that when we find these weak associations that we were hunting for, these unexpected and potentially creative associations, it gives us the benefit of the doubt. It says, wow, this is probably important. And so it biases the brain towards identifying these associations as important enough to then strengthen and make available to us during our waking life. So it's a gimmick, again, that allows the brain, once it finds these remote associations, to calculate them as being important and worth strengthening. Well, I don't want to take the conversation too far off the beaten path here, but it's interesting that that connection is made between REM sleep and LSD, considering that dreams and REM sleep in particular are so important for memory and emotional processing. And we're now seeing psychedelic research started back up that is trying to help individuals that are going through traumatic events or uh, other very negative things by helping them to process those emotions and those memories via psychedelics, Tony? Yes, there's a renewed interest. It was there uh, back in the 60s and 70s, and now it's coming back, whether it's research on LSD, uh, psilocybin, or the psychedelic main ingredient in what are known as magic mushrooms. All of these movements are at the forefront and have regained new energy, and people are indeed actively exploring the potential therapeutic uses of these uh, medications. So you guys do a very good job of busting popular myths about dreams, Tony, including that we're only really dreaming during REM sleep. That is not the case. And on that note, I like to read before bed. Occasionally I'll drift off and what I'm reading morphs into a dream. What is going on here, Tony? Well, as we fall asleep, the brain tends to tag experiences or things that we've done right before we were falling asleep. And so as we move further into the night, so when we are in light sleep or N2 sleep, for instance, later on, then the brain is more picking up on more 
distant episodic and other experiences that we've had, and in REM sleep, then we're really quite far from that. And then we're looking at really not episodic memories, but we're looking at the brain telling stories about these events. So when you are falling asleep, to come back to your question, you're much more likely to incorporate events and thoughts that you were having right before you were falling asleep. And so you're reading or whatever, if you're doing video games, you might have images and thoughts related to that as you're falling asleep. And your brain is probably also busy trying to tag what are the concerns that you have as you're falling asleep that might require further processing during sleep. And those dreams that happen at that initial state of sleep, those are called hypnagogic dreams, correct? That's correct. And so on that note, uh, chapter 11 covers dreams and inner creativity, and there are some thoughts about how creativity unfolds within dreaming. One is to facilitate problem solving, and the second is creative exploration of associative neural networks. The brain essentially ferreting out what is normally weak associations of potential value in addressing problems. Bob, you talked about that a little bit earlier. You guys, and Tony, I'm going to direct this one at you, cite several famous examples of problem solving during the hypnagogic period and how certain geniuses recognize the potential value during this stage of sleep. How did the artist Salvador Dali try to spark this process? That's an excellent question. And so when you're having these hypnagogic images, these dreams as you're falling asleep, if you do fall asleep, you're not going to remember them when you wake up many hours later in the morning. Salvador Dali would sleep in a chair and he would hold either a coin or a spoon in his hand and he would have a plate on the ground below the spoon. And so when he would fall asleep, he would drop the coin because he's losing his muscle tonus. So as he's falling asleep, the coin would fall or the spoon hit the plate, make a sound, and that would wake him up. And that would allow him to sort of capture or remember what were the images going through his mind as he was falling asleep. And so some of his uh, paintings are directly derived from these images that he was experiencing as he was falling asleep. So it's a way to interrupt the falling asleep process so that you may recall images and thoughts that were playing in your mind or dancing before your eyes as you were falling asleep. Similar example from Thomas Edison as well. And this concept of dream engineering or dream incubation is a fascinating one. Bob, you attended a dream engineering symposium at MIT's Media Lab within the last couple of years, I believe. What did you learn at that? Well, I learned that a lot of people are trying to come up with literally gadgets that can help people explore dream content. And one of the most exciting ones is being developed by a graduate student at MIT, Adam Horowitz, that he has named Dormio. And it's a combination of a device you hold in your hand and an app that you run on your smartphone. And what it does is that you record a topic that you want to dream about, that you want to have creative thoughts about, and it will play it for you. And it'll, so you'll be going to sleep and you'll start this up and it'll say, in Adam's case, in his research for his thesis, think about a tree. And then the handheld device is measuring muscle tone. And as that muscle tone relaxes and you are falling asleep, it will wake you up and say, tell me what you were dreaming. And it will record your dream report, and then I'll say, okay, you can go back to sleep now and remember, think about a tree. And he'll do that three or four or five times in the first half hour of someone trying to go to sleep. And it's delightful what he gets. He starts out, the first one will be, oh, I was seeing this big oak tree that was in the backyard of the house where I grew up. And the second one will be, oh, I was imagining this tree 
with millions of butterflies on it. And the third one would be, oh, I was imagining this tree on the moon that had giant elephants carved into it. And as you go through these sequential iterations, these images become more and more distant and more bizarre. And so Adam's idea is that he really wants to see if he can spark creativity in that same way that Edison and Dolly did, but now in a way that anybody could do it. Tony, while uh, this invention does sound intriguing, is there a simpler technique for people listening right now who could maybe try to spark dream incubation? Well, there's various techniques for what is known as dream incubation. The idea behind dream incubation is, can we help facilitate the creative process whereby we might have insights into potential solutions or decisions that we are struggling with with respect to any kind of waking life problem or situation that we are facing. And so one technique with related to dream incubation is when you're going to bed, take a few minutes and think about the problem you would like to target in your dreams and Try to summarize the problem in a short sentence question. And don't be afraid to try different formulations until you find one that feels right to you. And then this is sort of your incubation phrase. And when you're ready to go to sleep, tell yourself that you will dream about the problem. Make sure you have a pen and paper or recorder by your bedside so that when you wake up, you can immediately jot down or dictate whatever you are remembering. And so what you want to do is you're falling asleep is repeat your incubation sentence to yourself. And if you catch your mind wandering, you can let those thoughts go and bring your attention back to your phrase. And then the most important step is the following. Sleep. (laughs) And upon awakening, take the time and see if you recall anything, any dreams, any kinds of thoughts that are there, and jot them down. Now, this may not work the first time you try it, but it's a technique that many people report some success with, especially if they keep at it over time. And so the idea is to then start examining how your recalled dreams may relate to this incubation phrase. And on the subject of dream interpretation, is there a most important element one should ensure when looking to interpret his or her dreams, Tony? Well, I think it is important to move away from the idea of looking up the meaning of our dreams as if it was a foreign language and that a simple dictionary would tell us X means Y and W means Z, and that the dreamer as the creator of the dream needs to be involved in this dream appreciation process. And so I would be weary of any approach where interpretations of dreams are offered without knowing anything about the dreamer. You explore certain dysfunctions related to sleep and dreaming. Bob, how and why does Next Up break down when someone experiences PTSD-induced dreams? Well, when we look at the content of dreams, we can ask people, can you find any waking sources for your dreams? Why do you think you had this particular dream? And they can often find elements in a dream where they say, oh, I know my wife was in the dream because, well, it's strange. I was thinking about my mother last night and in my dream, that became my wife somehow. I don't understand it, but I'm confident that that's why she was in my dream. But we never see these situations where events from our day are actually replayed in our dreams, the way we would remember them when we are awake. So you dream about something that happened. You don't dream what happened. And PTSD is the exception to that rule. In PTSD, that process in the brain that takes us away from the actual memory and into those associative networks breaks down. And so they have these canonical PTSD nightmares that appear to be nearly precise replications 
of their memories of the traumatic event. And so those dreams indicate to us that the brain is failing to process their memories properly. So what you need to do to recover from trauma is to stop having the actual memory come up over and over again into your mind. And I'm talking about when you're awake. And instead, you have to go through this process where you come to understand the traumatic event in terms of the rest of your life, how it relates to other things that have happened in your life, how it relates to other things that you know about the world. So you can begin to imagine a future that's safe. You need to have the ability to do that sort of forward projecting construction of the narrative that lets you see, okay, well, yes, I was raped by that guy in this building, but that doesn't mean that all guys are dangerous and that all buildings are unsafe. Or I was in a car accident and my partner was killed. That doesn't mean I can't go in cars because we construct these scenarios where we can see the world functioning for us. And we do that while we sleep and while we dream. And the fact that those dreams in PTSD patients fail to do that transformation, fail to let us see other ways the world could play out, is possibly the reason that the PTSD exists in the first place. It might be that it is a critical function of sleep to allow us to dream about and process traumatic events in ways that allow us to see a way forward. And if those mechanisms break down, then we can't recover. And the reason they break down might be a failure to shut off that noradrenaline that I mentioned earlier. Normally during REM sleep, the release of noradrenaline in our brain is completely shut off. But we know that when people have PTSD are suffering from PTSD, that that shutoff of noradrenaline doesn't occur during sleep. The brain remains hyper alert while we sleep, the same as it does while we're awake. Not only does it not shut off, it actually increases a little bit too. Yes. Tony, amongst the sleep disorders that you guys cover, it includes those experiencing frequent nightmares. Are there any common qualities in individuals experiencing these frequent nightmares, according to Ernest Hartman, a gentleman that you guys cite throughout this book who spent much of his career studying bad dream sufferers? Yes, so Ernest Hartman was perplexed by the fact that many of the people coming to see him for chronic histories of nightmares, so these are lifelong nightmare sufferers, didn't appear to have any obvious childhood traumas, particularly stressful events that could easily explain the frequency and content of their nightmares. But he did find that many of these individuals showed similar traits. So they tend to be overly trusting, more artistic in nature, more easily blend various sensory modalities. They're more easily absorbed by activity, sort of to get carried away by a piece of music or absorbed into a novel or a film. And so he thought these people were generally more creative, also more sensitive, vulnerable to others, and that this formed a pattern that also predisposed them to be more likely to experience nightmares. That being said, we know there are many factors that can contribute to experiencing nightmares, going from medication to various kinds of stressors. And sometimes it just reflects maybe a dead end reached by dream-related processes. Chapter 14 is titled Conscious Mind, Sleeping Brain, as you might be able to surmise from hearing that title. This is the chapter that covers lucid dreaming. Bob, what is lucid dreaming and how is it misunderstood? Lucid dreaming at its core is being aware of the fact that you're dreaming while you're dreaming. And so that's all that it takes to be a lucid dreamer is to have that awareness. 
there's a general conceptualization of, of lucid dreaming as also involving the ability to control your dreams, something that I think most of us would love to do <laughs> if we could. And indeed, some lucid dreamers can, although only to a limited extent and in some very specific ways they can't. But I think that the main misunderstanding is, is some people think it doesn't exist. They think the person is actually awake and just thinks they're dreaming. And we know from physiological recordings that that's not the case. They actually are asleep and almost always in REM sleep. And again, this confusion of lucidity itself with this further ability to control our dreams. Tony, how can someone become a better or just become a lucid dreamer at all? Well, one of the difficulties in realizing that you're dreaming while immersed in the dream is spotting things that are unusual, bizarre. So we're not very critical in our dreams. And there's a reason for that. Parts of the brain in the frontal lobes that are important for judgment, planning, tend to be deactivated in REM sleep. And so we are not very critical with respect to what is going on about us. So one technique is to heighten or to try to develop this critical sense about what is going on around us while we are awake with the hope that this will transfer into our dreams. And so people can try different things. Anytime they experience strong emotions or something unusual while awake, they can ask themselves, am I dreaming? But you need to really ask yourself this question seriously and examine your surroundings carefully and think about how did I get here? What was I thinking or doing right before I asked the question? And you do this even though you're well aware that you are awake. And the reason you got to take this seriously is that if you don't, then you're going to have a dream and something weird is going to happen. And you can ask yourself, oh, am I dreaming? Well, of course not. And then you'll just continue. And then you can do other things. Like, for example, you can take a marker and put the word D on the palm of your hand, write it. And anytime you see the D, D for dream, you can ask yourself, am I dreaming? How did I get here? What's going on around me? And even just that activity of observing that letter that you wrote on your hand or having other people comment on it can get incorporated into your dreams. And this might open up a new venue for you to realize that you are dreaming. But becoming lucid in a dream is just the first part. Then you got to stay lucid in your dream. And many lucid dreamers find this particularly tricky. It's very easy to lose track of the fact that you're dreaming, to be distracted or otherwise, and so to fall back into non-lucid dreaming. And on the other hand, some people get overly excited in their lucid dreams. And just like the negative emotions in a nightmare can become overwhelming and wake you up, really intense positive emotions. For instance, you have a lucid dream and then you start flying and you find it so magnificent that you get overwhelmed with joy, and that too can wake you up. And so there's this delicate balancing act between becoming overly detached from the dream, which may lead you to non-lucid dreaming, or becoming overly engaged in it, and that leading to an awakening. Boy, I could continue this conversation for hours on end, no problem, but I don't want that to become a mundane nightmare for you both. So instead, I will ask each of you one final question. It's the same question that I want each of your response on based on the epilogue, which is titled What We Know, What We Don't Know. Bob, if you could know the answer to one question related to the research of dreaming, what would it be and why? Oh, well... I'd like to know how brain activity leads to dreaming. It's actually a a sneak approach to the larger question of consciousness. But what is it that makes a pattern of brain activity while we're sleeping suddenly go from just non-conscious brain activity carrying out various functions in the brain to an actual conscious experience of a dreaming? And Tony, for you, if you could know the answer to one question related to the research of dreaming, what would it be and why? 
returning to the idea that Bob had mentioned a little earlier about dream characters and how they seem to convince us that they have their own minds, their own intentions, their own emotions. One question is, how does the brain not only create these characters that inhabit our dreams, but how does it go about and why does it go about hiding information from us? Because in the dream, we do not know what will happen next, what characters will say or do next. And that is also true by and large in lucid dreams. And so how does the brain go about creating not only you, but also these other elements of the dream? And especially, why does it keep this information hidden from you? And so when you ask a character a question, you have no idea what they're going to say in response. But part of your brain knows your brain is creating the entire scene, including the conversation. And so when you are surprised by these events, your brain is actually surprising yourself. And so this to me is a key part of dreams that I would love to be able to better understand that ties into the bigger concept of uh, how can we explain consciousness during wakefulness and also dream-related consciousness. Antonio Zadra is a professor at the University of Montreal and a researcher at the Center for Advanced Research in Sleep Medicine. Robert Stickgold is a professor at Harvard Medical School and director of the Center for Sleep and Cognition. Together, they've just written the new book, When Brains Dream, Exploring the Science and Mystery of Sleep. Gentlemen, thank you so much for the time today and thank you for this excellent book. Oh, thank you very much for having us. We both enjoyed it. And thanks to you for listening. A reminder that you can hear all of our episodes and subscribe to the podcast through booksonpod.com. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.